Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. We are back from our summer break and better than ever. As always, we've got some really impressive feats of strength. We've got some great research reviews covering several studies over the last couple months. We've got some very helpful barbecue tips now that football season is in full swing. And we've got some huge announcements. We have a new Facebook group and a new subreddit, and those are going to allow you to join in on the Stronger by Science conversation. So without further ado, let's jump into the first episode of season three. Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. This is your host, Eric Trexler. We are back from summer break and we are better than ever. Uh, For this first episode back from summer break, I've got a very special temporary guest co-host. His name's Greg Knuckles. Greg, how was your summer break? It was fine, I guess. Uh, I don't really have any superlatives for it. Mostly just cooped up in the house, lifting a lot, cooking a lot. Uh, But yeah, it was fine. How was yours? It was good. Um, Did a bunch of writing, which was enjoyable. So some of that stuff will be coming out in the future, which is very good. But hey... I'm excited to be back. Uh, I kind of missed recording, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's going to be fun. Uh, the boys are back, baby. The boys are back in town, but not exactly the same. We got some big changes that, that occurred over the summer break. So a couple things to keep people uh, up to date on. First of all, one of the biggest things is now there are official designated spots on the internet where you can discuss the show but really all things Stronger by Science. We wanted to kind of designate some online spaces for people to talk about the show, but also just talk about articles that come out, questions people have for us. Uh, So we created a public Facebook group that people can join. It is called the Stronger by Science Community. So you can easily find that on Facebook. We also created a subreddit. So if you go to reddit.com slash r slash Stronger by Science, That is now the Stronger by Science subreddit. So Greg and I get a lot of messages from people, which we're always happy to receive, always happy to respond to, but we figured it would make sense to have an open public place where we could answer those questions, talk about the show, and talk about basically everything going on in the Stronger by Science cinematic universe. So Greg, you're going to be in charge of the subreddit because I don't understand how to use Reddit, but I'm going to learn. That is my commitment. It's on the air (laughs) and now it's set in stone. Another big change is we have to add a new segment. We haven't come up with a title yet. We only had a summer to think of it, but we could go with the classic, the classic being obscene profit timeout that that might be one. Uh, We could call it the selling out segment or the cashing in segment. Um, we'll workshop it, post in the community. Let us know what you think. But the big news is we now have a sponsor. We do. For the uh, first time ever. Yeah, so I am not entirely sure why they reached out to me specifically, probably just because I do use their products. Uh, but BulkSupplements.com reached out and said like, hey, uh, would you have any interest in being a brand ambassador? And I said pretty much like, no. I don't like the the whole vibe of brand ambassador. That just seems weird to me. But uh, I am occasionally a temporary guest co-host on a podcast. Would you be interested in sponsoring the podcast? Uh, and they said, sure. And so we've uh, we've been thinking about maybe getting a sponsor or like trying to get a sponsor for the podcast for a bit because it is not monetized in any way. Um, but we... 
weren't really sure how to go about that specifically just because like we didn't want to feel like we were selling out super hard and like so for example bulksupplements.com just sells you know individual ingredients that you could buy yourself and mix together we're comfortable with that but like a, a few supplement companies asked if they could sponsor the podcast and we said no just because we didn't want to feel like we were beholden to them in any way, shape, or form. Um, yeah, you know, like they put a dumb combination of ingredients in a product, and now you feel like, oh, should we say that that's a dumb combination of ingredients? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I've been using bulk supplements as the way that I acquire bulk supplements for a long time. Uh, I can't remember the last time I actually bought a branded supplement product, uh, except for Athlete Vitamin from Citadel Nutrition. It's good. Um, but yeah, for the most part, like if I want creatine, if I want citrulline malate, uh, I don't buy caffeine powder because I learned how dangerous that was. I used to, <laughs> wouldn't recommend it. Um, but yeah, uh, let's see. When I was playing around with beta alanine, like I get all of my stuff from bulk, bulk supplements just because uh, they have good prices. And, you know, you know, if I'm buying from some other company, I don't know if it's if they're like underdosing supplements, there's always a huge, huge markup. So, I mean, bulk supplements has high quality stuff at good prices. So like I've been using them for a long time. Uh, and so I didn't feel as ethically compromised <laughs> uh, agreeing to that sponsorship as, as I probably would for many other. Yeah. So if you go to bulk supplements.com and during the checkout, you enter the code SBS pod, SBS POD, you will get all caps, all caps. You will get 5% off your order. And so think of it this way, Greg, if you let, let's say you spend in a given year, two and a half million on supplements. <laughs> well, I'm not, I'm not saying that I'm not saying that's like the median amount that most people spend. I'm just saying, for instance, so yeah, be, I mean, this is a classic, like mean versus median, like exactly, you know, yeah. what, measure of central tendency to use we assume that for our listeners the median is closer to to about a million a million five uh but yeah mean probably around two and a half so if you're spending two and a half million per year you're using this this code you're going to save 125 grand per year and depending on your real estate market that's buying a house just from like two to four years of supplement savings i mean that's huge so five percent off your order sbs pod um, and if you're a different company and you'd like to rent our loyalty and credibility for a shockingly low price, hit us up. Maybe you'll get added to this segment. Sounds good. Okay, let's move on. Um, we've got a good news segment. So Greg, why don't you kick us off there? Yeah, so um, I, <laughs> I struggled to find a good, a good news thing, but I did find one, uh, so well, that, that defeat, defeats the whole purpose of the the segment. Saying. Well, there are good things that are happening; they're just difficult to find. Okay, I looked for a fucking diamond in the rough. What what more do you expect from me? Anyway, uh, so I went to something that's very near and dear to my heart. Two things actually, uh, which are bears and bulking. So this, the, the bears of the world are about to go into hibernation. Um, and so it seems like the fine bears at Katmai National Park have completed their summer and autumn bulking seasons successfully. And so in order to give them kind of the praise and recognition they deserve for their successful bulks, um, 
explore.org has a competition. It's a fat bear competition uh, where you can vote on which bears most successfully balked over this uh, over the summer and autumn. Uh, by the time this podcast comes out, Fat Bear Week will have concluded two days prior. So you'll probably be listening to this on Thursday. Fat Bear Week uh, finished up on Tuesday. But if you just go to explore.org slash meet hyphen the hyphen bears, you can you can check out all of the bears and how fat they got. Uh, and yeah, I feel good for those bears. Fun fact. uh Let's talk about hibernation for like five minutes because <laughs> I think people don't understand hibernation. I know I certainly didn't. I remember like learning about it in elementary or middle school biology class. That like, hey, here's this thing bears do. They uh, get in their den and it's nice and cozy and they pretty much just snooze and just generally vibe for a few months. That's not the case at all. Dude, hibernation sounds like it fucking sucks. I was listening to an NPR segment with someone from the Duke Lemur Center because apparently fat-tailed lemurs hibernate as well, uh, and they store their fat to hibernate in their tail. And like, dude, animals are not vibing at all when they're hibernating. Essentially, the process of hibernation is you take endothermic animals that, you know, regulate their body temperature via metabolic activity, slow the metabolic activity way, way down so they don't starve over winter. Uh, but then it's basically just a, a tug of war between starving to death and freezing to death. And so <laughs> they actually sleep for virtually none of the time. Uh, they're awake pretty much straight for, for several months with just small little naps interspersed. Uh, and they're walking a tightrope between doing a little activity to get some, some metabolic activity so they don't freeze to death and trying to move as little as possible so they don't starve to death. And basically, it just sounds like the most miserable process. And also, thing about bears, so uh, other animals that hibernate like lemurs generally find dens to get into so they'll be safe and not get attacked during their hibernating. But apparently, a lot of bears don't even find dens. So like a fair amount of them do. But since in most environments, they are the apex predator, it's not uncommon for bears to just <laughs> kind of decide like, hey, my my autumn bulk is done. It's hibernating time and just fucking lay down in the middle of a field because they know no one's going to mess with them. And they just hibernate there for like four months, which that is that is pretty cool yeah so so overall you for listeners who are looking for practical takeaways you'd say just like don't hibernate that would be my recommendation very cool so in my uh installment of the good news segment here we're, we're sticking with the animals theme humans just aren't generating a lot of good news you hate to say it but humanity <laughs> is uh it's on the back burner for now we're focusing on the animals yeah uh, man, if I could just say like one more kind of depressing thing <laughs> to, to bring down the mood during the good news segment. So I th I think making the good news segment does actively harm my mental health because <laughs> like, dude, we go on these we go on these websites. There are like good news curated websites for, I guess, people who want uplifting things to to see about and like you know, pick themselves up in dark times. But like most of the good news, like pieces of content on those sites 
are just severely dystopian. Yeah. It's like, hey, there's some kid who uh, has some sort of, you know, major medical issue who's going to fucking die because their parents don't have insurance. And like, you know, it's either let the kid fucking die or go in like six figures of debt. But oh man, their classmates pulled together and ran a bake sale to like allow them to get this treatment they needed. It's like, on one hand, you know, good for the classmates. That is nice. It shows humanity pulling together. But like the whole fucking premise of the story wouldn't exist if uh, a lot of shit hadn't gone, <laughs> hadn't gone wrong on the front end. Like yeah. both the fact that the kid has some sort of like major medical issue and two, the fact that our medical system basically puts people in a gambit of like let kids fucking die or put families in debt for generations like i feel like on the whole that's not good news <laughs> it's it's so unfortunately i'm playing right into your hand here oh no um <laughs> oh no <laughs> so my good news starts with some bad news no but this is a great example um and believe it or not i doubt you did enough prep for the show to read my good news link here. oh i absolutely did not so um Talequa, or Talaqua, I think, uh, was it was a whale? Is a whale who had a in in 2018. Uh, she was all over the news. She had a little baby whale. It passed away. It was very sad. People all over the world were watching. Um, but she has a new baby, a new healthy baby. So uh, it, it was a very sad story. Everybody was kind of grieving with this poor whale mom who lost her baby. But she had a new baby mother and baby are doing well. So it's a nice little feel good story. But one of the reasons I had to, to use this is it, it's kind of a personal uh, story for me. So um, Greg, if, if you were to think of a word to describe me, what would it be? Sophisticated. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so sophisticated gentleman that I am uh, <laughs> a couple years ago, I took a nice young woman on a date it was a cool date. We went to an art exhibit and it was uh, collaborations between an artist and a scientist um, doing art exhibits based on the science they do. So like a lot of cool imaging work that had been kind of, you know, biomedical imaging would be given to an artist to kind of put their creative spin on it. There's a lot of ocean stuff, uh, a lot of really cool ocean stuff. And I was like, oh, you know what we should do? We should watch an episode of that. Uh, I think it was called Blue Earth. Yeah. 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 And I had never seen it, but I was like, look at these cool, beautiful ocean things. That would be a cool thing to do. So it was the second date uh, with this person. And um, there was a very emotional whale scene <laughs> in Blue Earth that I didn't know was there. And so, um, you know, second date with somebody, you're thinking, okay, still got to make a good impression. Hopefully there will be a third date, right? What you don't want to do is look over during date number two and see tears. Uh, she was crying because of this really sad whale scene oh, that was no. very similar to uh, Tahlequah's uh, initial 2018 ordeal. Uh, so I was like, this is not going well. Um, I was not certain if there would be a third date because tears are not a good thing. But uh, there was a third date and many more. It's actually uh, my current girlfriend. So it's that was a couple of years ago, still going strong. But I owe her a positive story. <laughs> about a whale and a baby <laughs> and this is the positive whale and baby story nice so now we're even it's yeah, all good yeah that's good to hear okay that, that's uh, that's not nearly as dark and dystopian as the stuff i was talking about no i'm, I'm, I'm always good with like it was it, a sad in, thing like a, i'm good with like a happy animal story or like 
an animal redemption story. Like whatever. That's yeah. cool. Okay, so let's let's move on to humans for a small amount of time here. Let's do it. With the rest of the show. What about feats of strength? We've been gone for a while. Certainly people have continued to lift weights. Yeah, they have. Uh, in the outline, you specifically told me to limit myself to one to three total. Uh, so this is a relatively short feats of strength segment uh, and, and pretty recent stuff. So Joe Sullivan uh, recently set the all-time squat world record in the 100-kilo uh, class or 220-pound class uh, without wraps. So he squatted 373 kilos or 822 pounds. That beats Amit Sapir's uh, previous record by half a kilo or about a pound. Uh, <laughs> I think we've talked about some of Amit's previous records and questionable depth in relation to Kevin Oak breaking some of his other records. Um, the previous 220 record was not as much of uh, an utter shit show as like the 242 record that Amit held was, uh, but it was also questionable. Joe's depth, on the other hand, was flawless. He buried it. Really, really, really great lift. Uh, so kudos to Joe. Uh, the other one is uh, Tomas Haltala. Uh, I think he's... Oh, man, I should have noted this. I think he's Swedish. Um, he competes in IPF, in the IPF affiliates, as far as I'm aware. That's what his most recent comps have been in. Uh and he pulled 400 kilos or 881 pounds at a body weight of 106 kilos or 234 pounds, uh, which is crazy impressive. He seems like he's made a lot of progress. His best previous pull in a meet is 370 kilos or 815 pounds. So that's substantial progress for someone who's already that strong. Uh, and if he were to pull 400 kilos uh, in the IPF, that would tie for the third biggest drug-tested pull of all time. Uh, and the only two people who have pulled more in a tested competition are Mark Henry and uh, Mikhail Kuklaev, which I'll note, I didn't know that Kuklaev ever competed drug-tested. That one surprised me a little bit. I'm not going to elaborate on that further. But anyway, um, like, I mean, a 400-kilo deadlift... It's fucking strong, regardless of how someone competes or how much they weigh. But the fact that he competes tested and he only weighs 106 kilos, crazy, crazy impressive deadlift. Good stuff. All right. So during our break, a lot of research happened. It just kept pushing forward. The science never stops. It did. And so for that reason, we want to do a research roundup segment. Got quite a few studies to talk about here. So each one, we're going to keep it pretty brief. Just do a little snapshot just uh, to keep the people updated about what kind of science is happening. So I'm going to kick things off here. Um, I was looking through, uh, you know, we do the the journal sweep every month for MAST, kind of choosing what, uh, what articles we're, we're going to write each month. And so when I was looking through the list of articles that came out, I saw one about cannabis consumption. And uh, it, it kind of... I was pretty interested in it because I was hoping that maybe there would be some glimpses of like some CBD type interventions, um, you know, because CBD oil is everywhere and, and there's just really not much research on it. I was hoping maybe there'd be something about chronic training adaptations in there. Um, but but this study specifically well, looked... Or just scientific proof that 
marijuana usage is the peak of moral depravity. Yeah, and there really wasn't anything in there about moral depravity whatsoever, which I don't know who reviewed it. I don't know who the editor was, but y- you want to you want to tell both sides of that if you're yeah, going to do science. That's a major oversight. Yeah, but, but anyway, it, it just specifically looked at the acute effects of cannabis consumption on exercise performance. So um, it, it, what was really surprising is that there's just not a lot of research on this. Um, it, I guess it shouldn't be that surprising. Um, it, it's it's pretty difficult to get permission to do that. Um, yeah, like there, there's not a ton of exercise research on crack cocaine. That's true. And um, the two are very similar. <laughs> to some, yes. Um, but anyway, so so they, they had eight peer-reviewed publications that they, that they looked at in the syst- systematic review uh, and 10 literature reviews. So it's one of those things people like... <laughs> People like writing about it, but it's just, it's hard to do, actually do the research on it. Um, you know, it's, it's like BFR research circa 2013. Yeah. Like four studies in 19 narrative reviews. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so anyway, yeah, there's, people are interested in it, but there, there's just not that much primary original research to go with. Um, but, but they looked at those, those studies that were available and it makes sense, you know, like I, I, I think after the 80s specifically in the united states if you're trying to get the irb to approve it like it just wasn't going to happen yeah so um in this systematic review they looked at studies that included two different delivery routes uh either inhalation uh of the the thc or oral ingestion of the thc so edible um thc interventions so the results um basically showed that cannabis consumption prior to exercise uh, was unfavorable for performance. So subjects were uh, ha- had a reduced ability to maintain their effort and to maintain physical, um, you know, maximal work capacity during exercise. And there were some undesirable physiological responses as well. So um, heart rate and breathing rate were increased. Uh, myocardial oxygen demand was increased at a given intensity of exercise. And those aren't favorable things uh, when it comes to the physiological responses to exercise. And then there were some neurological effects as well that that influenced balance. Um, so so there was uh, at least one study looking at sway uh, that, that I recall. So some, some of the neuromuscular control was just a little bit skewed. Um, so based on the articles in this review, and again, it's a very small body of literature, uh, unsurprisingly, um, they basically said, hey, pre-exercise cannabis consumption, probably not a great idea. Uh, I'd still be really interested to see. It's one of those questions we get a lot where where people are like, hey, I enjoy using cannabis. It's legal where I live. So, you know, leave me alone. But is it really going to impair my gains over time if, you know, in the evening I'm consuming it? And, you know, none of the studies in this um, systematic review would really give any... um, any useful information for that question, but it definitely seems, uh, seems inadvisable to use THC, um, directly prior to exercise. So in this study, they were looking at exercise that occurred anywhere from 20 to about 200 minutes after the THC was ingested. So, uh, within those couple hours before exercise, it definitely looks like THC use is, is not advisable. One thing to, to keep in mind is that this systematic review might have even, um, underestimated the unfavorable responses. Um, the reason being a lot of these studies were published between 1974 and 1986. And so, um, 
the authors mentioned that at that time, the THC dosage in a single joint that would be used in this type of study was between uh, 5 and 25 milligrams of THC. Um, but times have changed, Greg. Uh, so a, a THC concentration in a joint today might be as high as like 150 milligrams per joint. Uh and so for just it, another reason that society is going to hell in a handbasket. <laughs> Unbelievable. Exactly. So so it, it's quite possible, you know, this systematic review found some unfavorable physiological effects acutely after THC uh, consumption, some unfavorable effects on performance. It's possible that the effects are even more unfavorable um, given the fact that the THC dosage per unit of cannabis has has really kind of skyrocketed since these studies occurred. Um, and again, this is purely looking at consuming it directly before exercise or within an hour or two beforehand. So this is not, this really has no bearing on whether or not, uh, THC or cannabis can be utilized. It's just, can it be utilized effectively before a workout? And the answer seems to be probably not. Yeah. I I mean, I think, uh, I think what you touched on with this body of literature being incomplete due to the dosages being used. I think that's a good point. Um, Another thing that I think is very unfortunate that it hasn't been looked into yet is, is like you said, they've looked at things like uh, changes in heart rate and breathing rate and myocardial oxygen demand. I think it's, it's pretty unfortunate that they haven't looked at the effects of THC on strength because I mean, if I know anything about the effects of marijuana from the documentary film Reefer Madness, uh, (laughs) it can just make people fly into a rage and uh, exhibit super physiological strength levels. So I think that uh, I think that research is definitely needed on that. I just find it disappointing. Every time that you talk trash on marijuana, we get like 96 negative ratings on (laughs) iTunes. So. We finally make the leap. The leap. We've we've got a sponsor now. Uh, it's quite an industrious enterprise we've got going here, and you drive it into the ground. I mean, once once bulk supplements start selling THC powder, I might change my tune. <laughs> no, All right. To, to be clear to our listeners, it's a bit. It's yeah. It's just a bit. It's just a bit. All right. So a recent study came out by Norum and colleagues. Uh, titled Caffeine Increases Strength and Power Performance in Resistance-Trained Females During Early Follicular Phase. Uh, And this is, the the results are basically what one would expect. So we've talked about caffeine on the podcast quite a bit before. There's, I don't know, probably like eight or ten different meta-analyses showing basically that uh, caffeine improves virtually all aspects of anaerobic performance. So one rep max strength, strength endurance, isometric strength, isokinetic strength, power output. Uh, like So it, it tends to have like pretty modest effects on all of those things, but they seem to be, you know, consistently and meaningfully positive. One of the drawbacks is that Virtually all of the research looking at the effect of caffeine on anaerobic performance and strength performance specifically has used exclusively male subjects. So, you know, we, we've talked about before how uh, the the resistance training literature does tend to be pretty male biased in terms of, of subject pools. Uh, but caffeine is <laughs> caffeine research is 
uh, substantially more slanted towards male subjects than than the literature as a whole. Um, and so it was good to see this study in in female lifters. So uh, they they did a crossover study, placebo controlled. Uh, subjects took either a placebo or four milligrams per kilogram of caffeine before exercise. Uh, and then, you know, 50-50 to start with. And then after a washout period, the people who took the placebo first took caffeine and vice versa. Uh, and they were looking at the effect on counter movement jump height, squat 1RM, squat reps to failure with 60% of 1RM, uh, bench 1 rep max, bench reps to failure, uh, and several other things. But those were the outcomes that I was the most interested in. Uh, and all of those things increased. All of the increases were... Again, as one would expect looking at the previous literature, uh, pretty modest, so trivial to small effect sizes, but uh, significant effects in favor of caffeine consumption. Um, one thing to note is that a lot of the studies in this area have used subjects who weren't habitual caffeine consumers uh, or, or who were low habitual caffeine consumers. The subjects in this study actually on average, used a bunch of caffeine, um, you know, just in day-to-day -day life. So one of the things the authors did was to look to see if habitual caffeine consumption was associated with the ergogenicity of caffeine for their various outcome measures. Uh, and they found that with the exception of reps to failure, uh, habitual caffeine consumption didn't seem to affect how much caffeine usage outperformed placebo. So basically... Um, you know, it, it could be that people who are habitual caffeine users may not get as much of a ergogenic strength endurance effect from using caffeine before workouts, but otherwise, like, regardless of whether you don't use caffeine or you do habitually use quite a bit of caffeine, caffeine does still seem to be ergogenic for, for most outcomes. Um... Another thing to note about this study, since it did use female athletes, is uh, they specifically collected data during the early follicular phase of the menstrual cycle. That's important because uh, one of the things about caffeine is um, there are reasons to suspect that the effects of caffeine on exercise performance might be different between the sexes, mostly because estrogen affects caffeine metabolism. Uh, and the early follicular phase is, um, you know, during menses or maybe up to a couple days post menses if, uh, if a woman has like relatively short menses. And during the early follicular phase, both estrogen and progesterone levels are quite low. Um, so it could be that there might still be sex differences in exercise performance uh, or like the, the effects of caffeine on exercise performance if it was measured at some other point in the menstrual cycle when estrogen and or progesterone levels are higher. Um, so that's something to note uh, and, you know, something to hopefully look for follow-up research on. Um, and another thing to note about this study, just kind of a, a statistical point, um, is some of the results of this study are are good examples of p-values being influenced by both magnitude and consistency. So uh, someone might pull up the full text of the study and look and see that there was a significant increase in bench press performance when people use caffeine instead of a placebo pre-workout. But the actual like mean 
the mean values for both conditions were 66 kilos for placebo and 68 kilos for caffeine. And someone might look at that and say, that's only a two kilo increase. How could that be significant? Especially, you know, since this study didn't have like 500 subjects or something. Uh, And that's because p-values are determined both by magnitude and consistency of effects. And so uh, this, this study shows the individual results. And I think one subject had no difference between the caffeine and placebo conditions, and every other subject uh, benched somewhere between one and four kilos more when they use caffeine than when they use the placebo. So it was a very, very consistent effect. It was a small effect, but it was very consistent. Um, and so, like, that's that's still worthwhile, and that tells you. You know, if uh, if something has like a large mean effect, but it's super variable, it might be great for some people and actually bad for other people. But in the case of caffeine, it seems to have relatively consistent effects. Um, if you take so much that it makes you like freak out and get super jittery, it might be ergolytic. But otherwise, it's probably going to either have no effect or a small positive effect. Um, and so, yeah, like knowing both the magnitude and consistency of an effect, I think is, is pretty important. And both of those things go into a P value. Yeah, it is crazy with the caffeine literature. There was a paper by Del Coso a couple years ago that was highlighting the discrepancy of male versus female, um, participant representation within the caffeine literature. Mm -hmm. And I can't remember the proportion off the top of my head, but I'm pretty sure it was like 80, 20, like, like it was, it was pretty lopsided. So mm-hmm. whenever you see another paper come out, uh, particularly when it comes to anaerobic outcomes, it, it's always good to see more research being done on caffeine specifically in female subjects. Okay. Moving on. Uh, I found a really cool paper. Uh, the title was appetitive traits as targets for weight loss the role of food cue responsiveness and satiety responsiveness. And the whole idea here was, was looking at these different appetite related traits of people and seeing how they, they tend to correlate with, um, with binge eating disorder, but also with overweight and obesity status. And it it was kind of a review paper that talked through some of those associations, talked through an underlying uh, kind of conceptual theory about how to actually act upon it. Uh, and they talk through some recent research that, that this group has done in terms of trying to intervene and actually influence some of these appetite-related traits. Um, so the whole idea that, that they present is based on uh, Schachter's externality theory. And the whole idea is that overeating and binge eating are related to high levels of reactivity to external cues to eat and also reductions in sensitivity to our internal satiety signal. So the idea is that people who are more prone to overeating, um, whether it's binge eating episodes or just kind of typical overeating in general leading to overweight and obesity, the idea is that there are some of these appetite-related traits inherent to these individuals, uh, which are developed, you know, they're not, you know, intrinsic and, and unchangeable, but but, but there, there are these appetite-related traits that seem to correlate with these overeating behaviors where people tend to be a little bit more responsive to external cues that cause them to eat and eventually overeat. And there's, there's a little bit lower sensitivity to typical intrinsic satiety signals, right? And so the idea is, the, these cues, by the way, can be really just about anything. These external cues, it could be 
you know, every time I walk by a subway and I smell the the bread baking, I'm like, man, I could definitely go for some bread, right? Like that that could be a cue. Ooh, did you see? I did see. Was it Ireland? Yeah. A, a court in Ireland ruled that the bread used for Subway subs is not in fact bread. Yeah, I think it's legally considered a cake or something like that in Ireland. It's it's a non-bread product for sure. I think we now have to admit that Food Babe was right all along. <laughs> yeah. Let us be the first to do so. Vanny, if you want to sponsor the podcast, <laughs> uh, our email is open to you. Yeah. So, um, but anyway, there's those external cues, right? Like you're presented with this food that, that you really like, and that can be a cue, but it can also be the environment that you're in or just habits you've developed, right? So like for me personally, uh, if it's late night and I'm sitting down to like watch something on TV, I, I typically want to like go make some popcorn. Like I just really mm-hmm. like snacking on popcorn. So I've associated the food with the activity and it might cause me to eat at a time where I have high satiety. Like I'm not actually physiologically hungry. And so the idea is that these traits where we, we, we've got these different cues that can cause us to overeat and a blunted sensitivity to satiety cues that actually tell us like, you're good, you're, you're totally full, it's time to stop eating. Uh, the balance of those different um, factors could have a big a big role in somebody's propensity to overeat, and so they've done some really cool um, really cool interventions with this group. Um, so it's kind of one big comprehensive intervention with multiple um, components to it. But they they do stuff like uh, they encourage their participants to um, monitor their hunger before, during, and after a meal. Like actually take time to think through it and monitor that and use a one to five scale before the meal. Um, you know, how is your uh, hunger level or satiety level? Actually give it a rating and then doing it, doing it again during the meal and then again after the meal and just kind of reinforcing the idea of getting in tune specifically with satiety cues without being influenced by other things that cause us to eat, such as, you know, one of the obvious ones is just the hedonic sensation of like, I'm eating this because it's really good. And, and like, it stimulates the reward centers of my brain. Like, so, so getting in touch with those satiety cues by actually practicing it. They also do a thing when it, when it comes to food cues, where they would bring in their high craving foods to an actual in-lab visit when they were already like totally satiated, right? So they're full, they're not hungry, they don't have a high desire to eat. And they would bring in their like their biggest trigger foods that cause them to overeat that they tend to crave. And it was it was honestly just like typical like exposure therapy, right? Just kind mm-hmm. of like hanging out with this food, but being in a state where you're like, no, I'm I'm just not gonna eat it because I'm not hungry and I don't need to, you know? So doing a little bit of that exposure. Um, they also had them do a one to five craving scale at home. So they were doing the hunger scales at periodic times, but also the craving scales and starting to actually think through, uh, am I hungry? Am I having cravings? What might be causing me to have a desire to eat at this particular time? And then of course they gave them education about the, about how neurobiological, physiological, psychological, and environmental factors all can kind of trigger overeating in particularly vulnerable individuals. So it's not just going in and trying to intervene on some of these things, but actually developing an understanding of what are all these different things that can contribute to the desire to eat or the desire to overeat. And so then they would also give them some coping skills as part of the intervention. So um, they would basically say, when you've got an urge to eat and you're not physiologically hungry, what can we actually do about that? So 
Uh, one thing is just changing the physical state of the body. So they would do like deep breathing exercises or relaxation exercises. Um, they introduced some behavioral alternatives to eating. Um, so uh, just kind of replacing it with other behaviors rather than eating at that time. Uh, changing their attentional focus. So some kind of distraction or um, imagery, self-motivational statements, a variety of different things to shift their focus and their attention from eating or the desire to eat to something else. Uh, and then also they, they worked on enhancing motivation to resist cues. So uh, actually kind of thinking through cost benefit analyses and things like that. So one of the reasons I wanted to bring this paper up is because I think it's people in the evidence-based fitness world, when it comes to nutrition, it's usually, uh, you know, we, we treat people like they're robots, right? And it's like, oh, you've got a nutrition problem, change the calorie number, change the macro composition, maybe change your food selection. But getting into some of the behavioral components, I think a lot of people overlook that and underestimate how big of a barrier some of these things can be. You know, when, when someone is really, really responsive to external cues to eat, or someone has, uh, has really lost that that ability to tap into their internal satiety cues that can be such a huge factor such a huge barrier when it comes to weight loss and so like for me i've always found weight loss to be weirdly easy and i've always wondered why that is because i'd like to believe i'm just really awesome but i just don't think that's the case right so one of the things that's interesting and this is really huge for coaches like if you're a coach and you've been really good at something and you see people struggle with it, you got to think through like what might actually be causing these divergent responses to a given intervention, right? So like if you were born strong and you're just genetically strong and you've always been strong and everything you do works and builds strength, you have to really think hard about your clients that are struggling to put on strength and think what's the difference here and what are some strategies and solutions? So I think it's really interesting. Like when I read this paper, I was like, yeah, I mean, I have really low responsiveness to external food cues. And that was something that, I mean, maybe it's inherent or innate. Maybe it was developed when I was younger, but it's never been a problem for me. But thinking through it, you can see how for a lot of people, that's a huge barrier to weight loss success. Same thing. Uh, I did have an experience where I completely lost touch with my satiety cues. Uh, one of the first bodybuilding preps I did after the competition, I was purely eating for hedonic sensations. <laughs> like my nutrition had nothing to do with obtaining nutrients at that point. And it was crazy because when you're in that, like really, when you've got that serious post-competition hyperphagia, you're like eating past satiety to a, I mean, to an extent you just couldn't even believe. Like I've never been that full and thought, I'm going in for more, like, you know, somebody <laughs> hold me back. So it's just really interesting to think through some of these things and, and think about nutrition outside of the macros, outside of these little food swaps and get into the behaviors, get into the things that can predispose someone to overeat. And if you're a coach, knowing about this stuff is really critical. And the thing I really like about it is that there are some actionable things you can do to actually uh, influence some of these things. So, it, you know, if you've got a client or if you yourself um, are really responsive to external eating cues, there are things you can do to actually be proactive and try to address that head on, which I think is, is really cool. So it was a really nice paper. And, and for someone who like, I would never claim to have any expertise on, on the behavioral side of things when it comes to nutrition, but even for someone like me, you could, you could dive into the paper and really get some good stuff out of it.
Yeah, so so my next is uh, effects of horizontal and inclined bench press on neuromuscular adaptations in untrained young men by Chavez and colleagues. Um, and so I wanted to talk about this paper for a couple reasons. One is that, so th- there have been like a fair amount of EMG studies on various pressing variations. So, you know, flat bench, close grip bench, wide grip, incline, decline, etc., whatever. Uh, and then people dr- trying to draw inferences about hypertrophy from EMG differences, which is, uh, you know, somewhat suspect. Uh, it's not quite like reading tarot cards, but it's not... It's a very tenuous yeah, leap to make. Yeah. Uh, and so th- this was the first study uh, comparing longitudinal adaptations uh, between flat bench and inclined bench. And so, um, you know, I-, I think like most people would read this and be like, okay, hypertrophy is really the only outcome that matters here. Uh, you know, do you need incline to build your upper chest? Uh, and is it that much better? And will it maybe neglect your lower chest? Like, do you need to do both? Uh, but they, they looked at both hypertrophy and strength. So the hypertrophy measures they took were pec thicknesses at three different points. So uh, in the second, third, and fifth intercostal spaces, um, which you can just think of as like upper, mid, and lower chest. And uh, also they looked at strength. Uh, they, they they did isometric uh, flat bench and incline bench as their strength assessments, which, you know, I wasn't crazy about, but it is what it is. Um and so they had people trained for, for eight weeks, uh, just pressing once a week, and they had three groups. One of them was doing only flat bench, one of them was doing only incline press, and the other one was doing 50-50 flat and incline bench uh, for four to six total sets of pressing per week, sets of eight to 12 to failure. So, you know, pretty basic, straightforward hypertrophy training. And in terms of what they found is that all three groups had similar strength outcomes uh, assessed via changes in isometric, incline, and flat bench. I didn't find that too surprising. Someone could look at that and be like, oh, so exercise specificity is a lie. It didn't pan out in this study. I don't necessarily think that's the case because they weren't doing isometric bench press for their training. Um, so I think that an isometric test is more just testing kind of like generalized pressing strength instead of the actual motor patterns that were being changed. Uh, but anyway, all all three interventions had similar impacts on, on isometric pressing strength. Uh, in terms of growth, which is what people probably mostly care about, is that middle and lower pec growth were similar in all three groups, but there was more upper pec growth in the group doing exclusively incline bench. So... Uh, you could read that, and I think quite a few people have read that because I've seen quite a few people uh, sharing and discussing this study. You could look at that and say, like, hey, look, the bodybuilders were right all along. If you want to develop your upper chest, you need to do some incline pressing. Uh, maybe that's with a barbell. Maybe it's with dumbbells. But, you know, you really, really need the incline work to build your upper chest. And I think that's probably true. Um, but... There was a really weird thing about this study that I haven't seen anyone discussing, and that's that just, like, the hypertrophy outcomes were fucking bonkers. So, uh, <laughs> there were, 
nine different hypertrophy outcomes. So upper, middle, and lower pec growth in three different groups. Uh, and the, the, the smallest amount of hypertrophy in any group for any region for any region of the pecs was a 24% increase in thickness. The largest was a 62% increase in thickness, which was basically going from like 15 millimeters to 25 millimeters, give or take, um, which is crazy. And the average across all groups and all sites was 44%. So averaging across all groups and all sites, that's a rate of increase in pec thickness of about 5% per week. And for, for that one that was a 62% increase, that's like six and a quarter percent per week. Uh, and so you might hear that and say like, oh, well, it might just be acute edema. Like, did they take the ultrasound scans, you know, 20 minutes after the last training session or like a day after the last training session? No, it says in the methods they took those ultrasound scans a week after the final training session, which should be plenty of time for edema to dissipate. Um, and just to contextualize like how extreme a five or like six and a quarter percent increase per week is for uh, changes in pec thickness, there's a review paper from 2007 by Wernbaum that everyone cites that just like takes all of the, the hypertrophy literature up to 2007 and just looks at like you know, how does intensity affect hypertrophy? How does volume and reps per week affect hypertrophy? How does total length of training time affect rates of hypertrophy? And there was like one study in in the that was cited in the Wernbaum review that found a rate of hypertrophy of like 5% per week. But that was in a study that I think lasted either one week or two weeks. So, you know, that's not hypertrophy. That is edema. Um, and the next highest was, I think like 3% per week. So we're seeing rates of hypertrophy up to twofold faster than have ever been reported previously. Uh, so anyway, you could read this paper and say, Hey, you got to do incline pressing to build your upper chest. Or you could read this paper and say, Hey, how the fuck did people grow that much? Period. Uh, and the choice, dear listener, is up to you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really like season three, Greg, is, is a changed man. You, you've already said, you know what? The food babe was right. And now you're saying, you know what? The bodybuilders were right. And this is a very humble version of Greg in season three. <laughs> I really like this. Oh, man. All right. Let's talk creatine. Everybody likes creatine. So new paper out. Uh, creatine supplementation does not influence the ratio between intracellular water and skeletal muscle mass in resistance trained men. So the whole idea, this is something that I've been really thinking about lately. Um, why? I don't know. It just keeps me up at night. But for the longest time when it comes to creatine, uh, the biggest question that bodybuilders always ask is, do I need to cut it before a competition? Or, you know, fitness models, do I need to cut it before a photo shoot? The idea being, you know, creatine could potentially cause some fluid retention and they don't want to look watery and puffy and bloated and lose definition due to water retention. And so I think probably the most common answer to that is don't worry about it. Uh, creatine is stored within the cell and it draws water into the cell because it's osmolytic. And so if anything, you know, the cell is going to, you know, 
puff up and it's going to draw water from the extracellular space and you're going to look huge and shredded and good to go. But for some reason, I was like, what's the the evidence for that? And, And several weeks ago, I started looking into it. And while that sounds good, theoretically, that just doesn't seem to be what happens in studies that look at intracellular and extracellular water um, in response to creatine. So this study, um, I did deduct two study points out of 100. Um, I I have a running tally. The way they calculated effect size got under my skin a little bit, but (laughs) anyone who reads mass knows that Greg and I just complain about that all the time. So I'm not going to dwell on it. But anyway, that's really not critical to understanding the study. What they found was, uh, they, they, it was a nice study. They did this really long lead-in kind of training program. I think it was like 16 weeks of training leading into it to get everybody kind of on the same footing. Mm-hmm. And then an actual eight-week training intervention with the creatine being provided. And what they found, you know, one group got creatine, one group got placebo. They all did eight weeks of resistance training. Um, intracellular water increased more in the creatine group than the placebo group. And that was a statistically significant difference. But the extracellular water changes did not differ between groups. And so you might look at that on the surface and say, oh, intracellular water, there was a difference. Extracellular water, there was not. And so clearly that's that's what we're seeing, right? Water drawn out of the extracellular compartment into the intracellular and we're good to go. But those results don't actually mean that extracellular water didn't increase at all in response to creatine supplementation. And they don't necessarily even indicate that there was a disproportionate shift of fluid from the extracellular to the intracellular space. Um, And so in this study, the, the increases in skeletal muscle mass, intracellular water, and total body water were higher in the creatine group than the placebo. But the ratio of intracellular water to skeletal muscle mass, that ratio did not change due to creatine supplementation. And so if you look at um, just basically uh, the simple ratio, what percentage of their total body water was intracellular or extracellular, that particular ratio stayed pretty constant. And and so those changes in intracellular water um, were, were largely due or largely attributable to an increase in skeletal muscle mass that occurred over the, the duration of the intervention. And so when you look at other studies that have done similar things where, where we give one group creatine, the other group a placebo and look at changes in extracellular water, intracellular water, total body water, uh, what we do find is that creatine tends to increase total body water a little bit, uh, both in short-term and in long-term interventions. And what we find is that the actual ratio of, you know, intracellular water to extracellular water doesn't really change much. It stays pretty stable. So it looks like creatine can increase total body water, but it doesn't look like there's some huge shift from the extracellular to the intracellular uh, fluid compartment. Um, So I I just think a lot of people are kind of saying that because it feels good and because it seems right. But I don't think the evidence actually supports that idea that your cells, you know, your cells are just going to be like sponges and your muscles are sucking up this fluid from the extracellular compartment. Um, and when you think about it, so if, if we want to say like, how much does creatine go up? So there are non-responders and there are people that have really high responses to creatine supplementation. But generally speaking, you could say it'll go up about 20%. 
all right, your, your muscle creatine saturation after supplementation. So if your muscle creatine saturation goes up 20% from supplementation, the overall osmolarity of your muscle cell is only going to increase by two or 3%. And so, because to be clear, there are a lot of things in your muscles other than creatine. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so we think, oh God, 20% higher creatine, that's going to be 20% higher osmolarity. There's going to be this huge shift in fluid. It's really a much more subtle shift. And, um, you know, there is something called regulatory volume decrease where the cell can kind of balance things out, um, you know, even in response to a pretty big osmotic stress. And so things do seem to kind of balance out in terms of that intracellular and extracellular uh, fluid storage. So I don't think it's fair to say that the water weight that might be attributable to creatine is purely due to intracellular fluid. However, I still think that the the take-home, uh, like the, the, the actual practical implications are probably similar. Like I, I don't think that just because there's a small increase in extracellular water that that means a bodybuilder should be cutting creatine before a competition or that a fitness model should be cutting their creatine before a photo shoot because you have to keep in mind extracellular water is not the same thing as subcutaneous water. And I think a lot of people have that in their mind mm-hmm. that, that if there's an increase in extracellular water, for some reason, it's just going to go straight under the skin and wash out all your definition and it's going to be bad news. That's not the case. Uh, there's a lot of different places for extracellular water to go. Um, and really only that subcutaneous fluid storage is, is going to really make a big difference in terms of how you look on stage or in your photo shoot. So, and, and everyone knows for that, all, all you need to do is switch to a tilapia only diet because that thins the skin. <laughs> exactly. Well, and some rice cakes, tilapia and a rice cake. Correct. Yeah. yeah. So, um, but yeah, so the idea is you can still keep your creatine in if you're a bodybuilder or getting ready for a photo shoot, whatever the case may be. But I, I think we probably ought to be a little bit more cautious about definitively stating if you take creatine, you're going to have this big increase in intracellular water and no increase at all in extracellular water. That that doesn't seem to be supported by any of the studies that have actually looked at that directly. Where do you think that came from? Do you think it was like partially reactive? Because I remember... I mean, I remember maybe like a decade ago, a bunch of people saying like, hey, if you take creatine, you're going to get super bloated. Do you think that there was almost, you know, just kind of like a pendulum swing where people were like, no, it's actually fine to take creatine. And in fact, it's good, actually, because it's going to make you look leaner. Yeah, I think it probably was reactionary. And I think it's one of those. The logic is intuitive enough that you wouldn't think too hard about it. Mm-hmm. You know, like there are some claims where you would say, well, I got to see some evidence for this. But with creatine and intracellular water storage, I think it's such an intuitive thing that you could say, oh, yeah, that totally makes sense. Not think too hard about fluid balance and fluid distribution and say, yeah, it's, it's just going to go in the cell. Extracellular is not going to change at all because why would it? And I, I think it was just so intuitive that it kind of would preclude you from actually digging in and saying, well, somebody's got to show me this. And so if you look at the studies where, where you actually try to really assess that, um, you, you might find one study, and this is, this is another thing that I think contributes to it. If you look at a study, it's not uncommon with these studies to see that the increase in intracellular water is statistically significant and the increase in extracellular is not. 
but when you actually calculate the ratios, it's pretty much unchanged. And, and that's just because there's more intracellular than ex- extracellular water, period, right? Yeah, yeah, there is. So so intracellular, um, you know, is typically going to be 60, 66% of your total body water. Uh, it, it is a slightly larger um, fluid compartment than extracellular water. So that that plays into it for sure in terms of finding that statistical significance. You've got a little bit more fluctuation going on. Um, but, but yeah, so in fitness, we have these things that just become cliche, right? Like you just repeat it over and over. And I know I've probably said that dozens of times in the past because like everybody says it, right? No, nah, it's just intracellular. Don't worry about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there's a little bit more nuance to it than that. But the take-home point is still the same. I don't think people should be cutting their creatine before bodybuilding shows or photo shoots. Um, because you know, extracellular water probably will increase a little bit, but it's probably not going to unfavorably affect the physique. That checks out. All right. Uh, my next study, and I believe my last study uh, for this research roundup is titled mu opioid receptor induced synaptic plasticity in dopamine neurons mediates the rewarding properties of anabolic androgenic steroids by Bontempi and Banchi. Uh, So that was a mouthful, and I'm not going to get into the details of this study too much. Firstly, because I think I understand it pretty well, but this is comfortably outside my like core area of expertise. So if I tried to explain it, I'd probably get uh, several details wrong. Um, And also because like, I don't know. I, I feel like this is one of the, so this is, this is a mouse study. And so I think that the concept matters more than, uh, like the, the specific experimental model and findings. Um, but anyway, so one of the things I've seen bandied about on the forums and argued over for a long, long time is whether or not steroids are addictive in kind of the classical sense and uh, some people who generally tend to be like pretty radically anti-steroid just treat steroid addiction as if it's like a thing that you know basically functions the same way as like nicotine addiction or like you know the worst of them marijuana addiction Um, but yeah so there will be some people saying that uh, and then a lot of people who uh, I, I suspect either use steroids or uh, at least like have buddies who use steroids will say like, no, no, they're they're not actually addictive, but like they may kind of appear to be addictive because people go on them, they get crazy gains and like they don't want to lose their gains. And so like, yeah, of course they're going to keep taking them, but it's more because they like the outcome less than like you know, actual like chemical processes in the brain induced by the steroids. Uh, And so this was a paper in mice basically looking to see if uh, like neural shit that looks like neural shit that happens when people take classically addictive substances also occur when you give mice steroids. Uh, And so basically they did. Um, So there was... uh, What's it called, like, when you get a runner's high? Like, what are those things called? Endorphins? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, when they gave these rats steroids, there was a pretty large increase in endorphins uh, and impacts on the mu opioid receptor that caused some uh, synaptic changes that looked relatively comparable to 
uh, changes that would be induced with actual opioid injection. Um, and so basically the authors of the study argue that for, for some people, and I guess just mammals in general, uh, steroids might actually be kind of classically addictive. Uh, and the findings of this study do actually comport relatively well with some observational human research. So there's some human research showing that um, people who are habitual users of steroids when prescribed opioid pain medication are more likely to become uh, addicted to or dependent on opioids than people who are prescribed those same medications who aren't also habitual steroid users. Um, so it seems like there's there's some degree of overlap in, in the kind of addiction causing or influencing neural pathways uh, between opioids and steroids, uh, and that people who might be at an elevated risk of opioid addiction or dependence might also be at a somewhat elevated risk of uh, steroid addiction or dependence. And so to be clear, um, I'm not saying, not not even coming anywhere close to saying that everyone who uses steroids are addicted to steroids, nor am I saying that uh, addiction is even likely. So one of the things to note is like the, the qualitative neural impacts seem to be similar between steroids and opioids, but the magnitude of those impacts way, way bigger with opioids. So like, don't clip this and say like, hey, Greg is saying that steroids are just as addictive as fucking Vicodin because I'm not. Um, or but, even cheese. Or <laughs> or even cheese and certainly not marijuana. <laughs> um, but I think, I, th I think this is just something to generally be aware of. So one of the things we've talked about on this podcast multiple times is like, we don't give a shit if people use steroids, but, um, you know, before you do anything, like before you make any sort of momentous decision, uh, you should be fully aware of the risks. And if like actual kind of chemical dependency is a risk, I don't think that's a risk that a lot of people are aware of. Like, it's not a risk that I was aware of. Um, and, and to be clear, it's not like fully established, but there, there seems to be growing evidence that that is a, a potential risk here. Um, so yeah, like I would say if y either you have dealt with opioid dependency issues or you have like a family history of opioid dependency issues, maybe be more cautious uh, before deciding to use steroids or, you know, just something to be aware of to to put into your calculus when it comes to making that decision. I think that's one of the least satisfying things about getting into reading research is that like for a paper like this, like your, your conclusions were basically like, here's a thing that I'm not fully sure what to do with, but it is a thing that exists. Store that somewhere in your brain, mm -hmm. you know, like ha developing that patience uh, when you're reading research and saying like, here's one paper finding a thing that may or may not be relevant. I'll wait six or seven years and see if I'm still concerned about it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it, you really have to develop that patience, especially when it's a novel idea and you're like, well, we need to wait to see if this kind of snowballs into a line of research to see if more findings seem to kind of converge with this finding and show a similar thing. 
Um, I, I remember when I first got into like, when I first found out people were doing research about stuff I cared about and I was like, oh, so I can actually go find it myself thinking that I would find like open a paper and that paper would have my answer, Mm -hmm. you know, and and this is one of those lines of research where it's just not even close. Yeah. And I mean, also like it's, it's one of those things where like it it wouldn't necessarily be impossible to do research like this in humans. Uh, Not the exact study they did on the mice because uh, to, to actually look at some of the physical neuronal changes, they basically like administered steroids to these mice look to see how it changed their behavior and then like decapitated them and uh you know so they could actually look at their brains yeah so you can't do that on humans um but you know there are are models that people can use to do research on addiction um the problem is like much like uh much like the marijuana research that eric discussed earlier um it's one of those things where it's hard like you can't really do rcts because you got to get them by an IRB and uh, you know, now, now weed is like legal in some places, but like recreational steroid use isn't legal anywhere in the U S like theoretically this could be done in another country, but at least in the U S like you can't go to an IRB and say like, Hey, we're going to inject people with either like a shitload of trend or a placebo and see how that affects like addictive behavior. So it's one of those things where it's almost like, um, so it's not as strong. I'm certainly not claiming it's as strong as like the uh, tobacco research. Um, but like one of the whole things with with tobacco research and its links to cancer was there were there were like multiple experimental models showing that like, you know, here's the impact of tobacco smoke on like some cell line, like in vitro research. Here's some epidemiological research. Uh, here's experimental research, but in animals. And you put all of that together and you start developing, uh, you start developing a very, very clear idea that uh, smoking cigarettes probably either causes or dramatically elevates your risk of lung cancer. But then people could say like, look, I mean, you haven't done RCTs on humans where like you force one group of people to smoke four packs a day for 30 years and like give other people, I guess, placebo cigarettes. I don't know. Um, so, you know, un- until, until we have that top quality evidence to prove it, who's really to say, and I feel like that's how, you know, a lot of research on marijuana is a lot of research on steroids is like, you know, th- there, there are multiple lines of evidence that you can look at to, kind of develop a probabilistic idea of what some of these effects are. Um, but like the, the number of RCTs in humans is really low because mostly they were done before these substances became illegal. And now that they are illegal, at least most places, like it's hard to get something by the IRB. Definitely. All right. So the um, research roundup segment is almost over. I'm just going to take a very quick look at a couple extra studies here. So the first one, I'm not going to go into detail because I'm actually going to be writing a mass article about it uh, this upcoming month. But I just wanted to to give a little, a little piece to get people uh, excited about this, you know, to, to whet the appetite a bit. So this article, the, the reason I want to address it because I've gotten some questions about it because the, the title is quite controversial. So the title is 
Metabolic adaptation is an illusion only present when participants are in negative energy balance. And so like, you know, I've written about metabolic adaptation. That's a good clickbait title. Yeah. And so like people see that title and they're like, ooh, Eric, shots fired. Any thoughts? So a a couple things that I just want to briefly mention. So uh, they said gold standard methods were used for the measurement of RMR and body composition. And for body composition, they use bod pod. The whole study is invalid now. If you're calling bod pod a gold standard body composition method, I'm throwing out the baby with the bathwater. The whole thing's invalidated. I'm being partially facetious, but gold standard has to mean something. (laughs) You know, like it either means something or it doesn't. No one in their right mind is calling bod pod a gold standard method for body composition. That's insane. Like it's a mostly suitable reasonably justifiable dude i'll be honest sometimes if you submit a paper where your only body comp method uh was bod pod you're nervous that the reviewers are going to accept it to just say like yeah that's fine Mm -hmm. the idea that you're calling that gold standard is insane uh anyway getting to the real stuff so they they said that metabolic adaptation is an illusion but if you look at their results um they did find that at the time points they're looking at the individuals, um, their measured resting metabolic rate was lower than their predicted resting metabolic rate. And you might be thinking, uh, well, maybe, you know, maybe it wasn't statistically significant. So they're saying that's why it didn't exist. Like there was no adaptation because even though it was lower than predicted, it wasn't significant or something like that. Uh, but it was. So like they identified that resting metabolic rate was lower than predicted and that difference between measured and predicted was statistically significant. So how, how long was the actual uh, like hypocaloric intervention? Like was that week one to week nine or was that week one to week 13? No. So so the whole idea was that from week nine to week 13, that would be the period where they were at energy balance. Okay. So that okay. they would they would do the hypocaloric thing, see it present. And then after they put them in energy balance, like, okay, it's totally gone. Gotcha. But like it was still present and it wasn't huge, but like it was there. It was statistically significant. The idea that you would take that finding, like if you want to say like, wow, this is too small to care about. And, you know, we challenge that this is a major barrier to weight loss or weight maintenance success. Yeah. Throw that in the title. But the idea that you're just like total illusion, a a figment of your imagination. It's like, but you found it. Yeah. So do you think this comes down... Like when people say metabolic adaptation, I think there's a question of like definitions, right? So, um, you know, are you defining metabolic adaptation as, hey, when you go into an energy deficit, your resting metabolic rate decreases and like that's one of the things that might make you have to drop to a lower calorie intake than you thought you would to continue losing weight? Or are you defining metabolic adaptation as, like when you achieve a steady new lower body weight, your RMR is still decreased. Like when I hear people talk about metabolic adaptation, it seems to be more similar to that first definition that like, hey, when you go into a deficit or surplus, your metabolic rate adapts to it. And, you know, that might affect how many calories you have to eat to gain or lose weight. Um, When people talk about metabolic adaptation in the literature, is this what they're talking about? That like, like lingering effects on RMR once people get back to energy balance? 
I mean, people look at it from very different angles. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think there's a universal way to look at it in the literature. I, I can tell you the way that I tend to look at it. I tend to look at it. I mean, I think that being in a deficit is part of the equation when it comes to active weight loss. Mm -hmm. So, so I am interested in seeing when you're actively losing weight, how much lower are we seeing things drop? But another thing to keep in mind is that I, I find resting metabolic rate to be one of the least interesting facets of metabolic adaptation. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, if you look at, if you look at the literature as a whole, the changes in resting metabolic rate aren't really that notable and they become even less notable at energy balance. And so I, I find the, the, a lot of papers take that singular focus looking at resting metabolic rate. And I understand why methodologically it makes sense to do that. Cause like the other components of resting or of total energy expenditure are quite difficult to measure. Mm -hmm. But you know, when someone says like, Oh, that whole concept of metabolic adaptation, throw it out because of something about resting metabolic rate at energy balance. I, I just think that the, the concept of understanding and planning for metabolic adaptation is, uh, so much more useful than just looking at resting metabolic rate in, in an energy balanced state, you mm -hmm. know? So I, I think there's still a, a tremendous amount of value, even if we can't really act upon it too much of at least understanding what to expect when we talk about over the course of a diet, what are we going to have to do to our caloric intake? And part of that is this, uh, adaptive process that's present in an energy balanced state. But practically speaking, we have to account for the fact that when you're in a deficit, it's, it's augmented, it's exaggerated, and that's affecting our ability to push the diet forward to some extent. And then when you factor in a lot of the, uh, the endocrine changes that accompany it, when you factor in, uh, some of the side effects associated with that, the fatigue, the lethargic feelings, the reproductive side effects. I mean, when we talk about the series of adaptations that accompany a pretty serious weight loss attempt, um, yeah, it, it goes well beyond resting metabolic rate to be sure. So a, a lot of people saw that title and were like, damn, Eric, you got dunked on by science. And like, first of all, I, even with their very particular approach to defining metabolic adaptation, they still found it. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but I, I think the utility of metabolic adaptation and at least understanding it goes far beyond the, the scope of that definition. Um, okay. So moving on, there was a couple things I wanted to mention. So uh, this paper, it was called Are Questionable Research Practices Facilitating New Discoveries in Sport and Exercise Medicine? The proportion of supported hypotheses is implausibly high. Shocked, I tell you. So Shocked. exercise science, you're on notice officially. Um, it, it was really cool. I, I like this paper. They just kind of took a little survey of... Uh, of the studies in sport and exercise medicine, as they called it, uh, look, looked at kind of a cross section of, of some of the higher tier journals um, for whatever those tiers are worth. <laughs> <laughs> so in, in their sample that, that they looked at, they had 215 original research studies. Only 60% of them reported a hypothesis of any kind. Which is fucking crazy. That, that's, a, that's a low number. When I learned about science in what, like fucking seventh grade? Yeah. Step one is like generate a hypothesis 
And step two is like, you know, design an experiment, then carry it out, then collect your data, see if it supports or refutes your hypothesis, and then go back to the drawing board. Like, dude, all the shit we do, except for like systematic reviews, whatever, like you don't need a a hypothesis for that. Uh, Or if you're just like reporting normative data, whatever. But like most of the experimental research in our field should have a fucking hypothesis. Like, Well, they're doing hypothesis tests. Yeah, yeah, which is crazy. Like, uh, anything where you're reporting a p-value, that's like reporting compatibility with a null hypothesis. But, like, if you don't have a fucking alternate hypothesis, what's your goddamn null? How do you define what it is? That's so crazy. That's insane. Yeah, you'd want it to be higher than 60%. It is the, is my response. (laughs) Um, so of those 60% that reported at least one hypothesis. Um, these researchers kind of identified the primary, you know, main hypothesis. So of those studies, 82% um, reported that their hypothesis was supported by their studies results. So if you reported a hypothesis in your paper, 82% of the time you were saying, yep, and we found exactly what we thought. Uh, so of those that that were supported so of the studies whose primary hypothesis was supported by their results based on their interpretation uh 71% reported that the pro- the primary hypothesis was fully supported by the results and then the rest said like ah oh, it's partial support of our hypothesis or it, it was just unclear if it was full or partial support so the idea was not many researchers out there are reporting hypotheses at all and those that do typically uh, have a very high success rate of finding data that support their hypothesis. And there's a number of reasons why that might be, but that the general uh, purpose of this paper was to call on people in our field, like, Hey, report more hypotheses. And, uh, sometimes you should be wrong. Yeah. Sometimes uh, you, you'd found something interesting. I remember you were kind of looking into something, not quite this, but similar to this. And you had found that in a lot of the exercise science studies, there were like, a ton of hypotheses that were just the, the success rate was absurdly high because the hypotheses were just like the safest thing. Yeah. Just completely obvious. Right. Like if we do it eight week aerobic exercise intervention in untrained people, VO two peak will go up. Yeah. Yeah. Like it was just slam dunk. Yeah. So there, there's a lot of that. Um, yeah. I, I don't know. I, I have some thoughts. It's probably not worth going down this rabbit hole because we would we would be here for like 45 minutes. Yeah. Um, maybe, maybe for another show. Yeah. The, the other thing I'd say is like not only do people need to report their hypotheses, but like there really, really needs to be a more robust system and a more robust set of expectations that like not only will you report your hypotheses in the study, but that like you will either pre-register hypotheses beforehand or publish registered reports where like you have to state your hypotheses beforehand. Um, Oh man, I don't have the paper pulled up in front of me, but I feel like I can describe it reasonably well. So I think we've, we've talked about registered reports on the podcast before, uh, but just like a very, very brief primer on them again for people who missed that episode. Uh, in the traditional publishing model, basically you get a study approved, you collect the data, you analyze it, you write it up, then you submit it for publication and it either gets accepted or rejected. Uh, with registered reports, 
you develop a, an idea for a study. And uh, generally, first step would still be getting it approved by ethics at your school. And then once that's done, uh, you just basically submit the methods and the data analysis plan to a journal. And the journal either accepts it and says like, hey, uh, you know, based on what you say you're going to do and how you're going to analyze your data, we think that whatever the results are, it will be valuable to our readers. Or they reject it. They say, like, your methods are shit. The way you want to analyze this data is stupid. We don't want this. Um, and so with a registered report, once you, you get it accepted before you do it, like before you actually carry out the study. And then once you carry out the study, you analyze the data the way you said you were going to, and then you publish it. And after after the paper's been accepted on the front end where you just submitted your methods and data analysis plan, whatever your results are, the journal will publish it as long as you actually did the study the way you said you were going to and analyze the data the way you said you were going to. So anyway, with with that background, um, the thing with registered reports is like it removes the incentive to do dodgy stuff with data, either just to sit on it if you don't get the results you wanted or to, um, you know, hark or p-hack or, you know, change your hypotheses after the fact. Uh, in order to get a significant result that might be more publishable. So like it basically removes those incentives because the paper has already been accepted just on the strength of the methods. Um, and so in psychology, they are starting to publish more registered reports. And so there's there's been at least a couple studies that compare uh, the rates of uh, statistically significant positive results in the direction of the author's hypotheses in traditional papers versus registered reports. And in traditional papers, it's like 80, 85%. In registered reports, it's like 50, 60%, which, which checks out. Like, you know, if people know their field, like they're gonna generate hypotheses that pan out more often than not. But there's like a way, way lower success rate in registered reports than traditional articles. So like, do with that information what you will. Yeah. Yeah. And so for, for more information on this kind of stuff, our most recent fireside chat, we talked all about the particulars of like open science and registered reports and all that stuff. So listeners can go. Wasn't it two fireside chats ago? It was one of the fireside chats. What, one of one of the fairly recent ones. Yeah, it's out there. Uh, another paper uh, along these same lines, it, it was called Call to Increase Statistical Collaboration in Sports Science, Sport and Exercise Medicine, and Sports Physiotherapy. So it was basically a paper saying, hey, everybody, uh, let's do some good stats. Uh, it, it was, uh, you know, it was just a, a positive thing. You know, hey, let's let's go, let's start doing better with this stuff, which is good. You know, it, it was, uh, but but what, what they were basically calling for, I think their biggest uh, request uh, in, in this paper is basically, Listen, you're an exercise scientist and let, let's be clear, exercise scientists, like you have to be an expert in the theory of the topic you study. You have to be an expert in the methods, which are not easy to do. I mean, there's a lot of methods that are highly technical. Uh, you have to like build apparatuses to like actually make it work. Right. So if you go to like a neuromuscular focused laboratory, they've got all sorts of contraptions where they had to bring in an engineer and a carpenter and they've got to be like you know, they, they need someone who's like an electrical engineer to do all the, you know, all the stuff they're trying to do. So it, it's, it's advanced theory. It's advanced, very technical methods. And then on top of that, 
in your free time, you're supposed to learn how to be a statistician at a high level. So like we're asking a lot of, of exercise scientists without collaboration. And so this paper is saying like, what if you just did collaborate, <laughs> you know? So like reach out to people in these fields that are more quantitative in focus, team up with a biostatistician, a statistician, a data scientist, an, epidemiolog an epidemiologist, a mathematician, all these different fields that, that do some of this very quantitative work and might be able to make your st statistical analysis even better without you needing to somehow find enough free time to basically get a PhD in biostats, right? Because that, that ain't going to happen with yeah. all the stuff you're currently doing. Um, and I will say this. So in my short publishing career, I have had the privilege uh, of collaborating with a biostatistician, an epidemiologist, and a mathematician. Uh, across different projects. And those have been awesome projects. I, I'm telling you, if you're a sports scientist listening to this, or if you're a student who wants to get into research, if you can find ways to collaborate with those people, uh, it's a really fantastic idea. Um, it, it the, the coolest projects I've done, uh, analyses where I didn't have to, you know, completely lead the way and was able to learn from, from the more skilled people doing it. Really, really good stuff. Uh, okay, so Greg, I don't think we're gonna have time for a Q and A segment. I, I think we might want to do our coach's corner and uh, and call it a day. How do you feel about that? Yeah, that works. Cool. So uh, Q and A, we'll, we'll do them all next episode. We're gonna be putting them up every two weeks, folks. We are back. Uh, so let me scroll ahead here to the coach's corner. Yeah. So this is uh, a question that uh, quite a few people have messaged me about. So um, on my personal Instagram page at Trexler Fitness, some of the hottest content on Instagram. And a lot of people are saying maybe too hot for Instagram, but, <laughs> but for now I'm posting. Um, so on my personal page, I, I, I started doing something called recommended reads where I basically say like, Hey, here's a cool exercise science article or paper or whatever. Go check that out. And so what I shared was, um, there is a review paper by Mike Isriatel and colleagues called Mesocycle Progression in Hypertrophy, Volume Versus Intensity. And so basically the whole idea of their paper was that uh, their assessment of the literature would suggest that kind of the ideal way to make progression occur throughout the course of a mesocycle from week to week is by adding additional sets into the program. Uh, now, Brian Miner and colleagues, including the good doctor, Eric Helms, uh, they published a letter to the editor, uh, kind of a response to this paper, and they argued uh, against a number of points in the paper and suggested a slightly different way of progressing things throughout the course of a mesocycle. And so I shared this, uh, this back and forth, and a lot of people asked, you know, Eric, what, what's your approach to progressing things along over the course of a mesocycle. And also, and probably more importantly, what's Greg's approach? Because Greg is the training guy. So Greg, over the course of a mesocycle, week to week, we're gonna be adjusting some training variables, um, you know, to kind of nudge things along, I assume. So, I mean, do you have any strong feelings one way or the other? Because th this turned into, uh, they, they kind of did like a round table on the Revive Stronger podcast with, uh, with Steve Hall. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of back and forth. Do you have any, wh what camp are you in, if any? Uh, I, I'm probably closer to the Helms camp, honestly. Uh, so 
let me start by arguing against that and why I think there might be some uh, some value in in progressing sets on like shorter timescales. One is that um, so the the first reason that I think there might be value in in progressing sets over the course of a mesocycle is there's not say like RCTs showing that that's the best way to approach it, but there are a few studies where uh, like basically what they do is they take people, uh, ask them what their training has looked like for like the two, three, four weeks leading up to the study, get a baseline of how many sets that they were previously doing, and then increase their set volume by like 20%. Uh, and, and like there will be different like research questions layered on top of that, but like that's the way they go about dictating volume in those studies. Um, and one of the things I've noticed about those studies is they tend to have relatively low non-response rates compared to the broader literature. So especially if you're doing research on trained individuals, it's not incredibly uncommon for, say, between like a quarter and a fifth of your subjects to not gain muscle over the course of the study, which makes sense. Um, I don't like the term non-responder because they're probably not non-responders in a general sense, but like, hey, you know, the the training intervention you, you that you're using in the study may either be excessive for some folks or not enough for some folks. And so you, you wind up with, uh, with non-trivial rates of non-response where people fail to get bigger. In, in the studies I've seen where the way they dictate volume is a 20% increase from an individual's baseline, uh, they tend to have pretty low rates of non-response, which suggests that volume increases in terms of the number of sets people are doing is a pretty reliable way, not necessarily to maximize hypertrophy strictly, but to just ensure that some hypertrophy will occur like over the next eight weeks or 12 weeks or something like that. And the thing I'll note about that is that's, it, it, I don't know a ton about how Mike programs training Mike Isertel, but I think that's different from the way he does it because that's essentially like, we're going to bump your volume up 20% and you're going to stay at this 20% elevated level for the next two or three months versus like, you know, we're going to bump you up 20%. In another four weeks, we're going to bump you up another 10%. In another four weeks, we're going to bump you up another 10%. But but anyway, um, to some degree, it seems like volume increases help with like the reliability of like muscle hypertrophy occurring. Yeah, in, in this, uh, in the paper itself, they have like a diagram where they add two sets every week. Oh, yeah, that's not what they're doing in those studies <laughs> that I'm describing. Yeah, so over <laughs> six weeks in this figure... It goes from 10 up to 20 sets, and then week seven drops down to five. Yeah, yeah. So that, that's not what they're doing in the studies I'm talking about. That's like a 20% increase in just staying at 20%. Right. Um, the other thing I would say is that of, of, of the targets that you can kind of aim at for like prescribing training variables and keeping people engaged. I think that adding sets is a pretty decent tool in the arsenal because, uh, and I think that's especially true for exercises. You can't load quite as heavily. So, you know, let's say you have someone, um, who's doing dumbbell press and their current working weight is 40 pounds per hand. 
Uh, and the next jump they're going to take is to 45, which is in excess of a 10% jump in load. So, you know, that's they need to get quite a bit stronger before they can still do a fair number of reps with that load increase. Um, and so, but, but also like, you know, if you change from say having them aim for sets of eight to sets of 10, uh, you know, you can probably do sets of eight at like 80% of one RM and you can probably do sets of 10 at like 75% of one RM. And so, you know, to go from, say, prescribing three sets of eight to three sets of 10, uh, they might have to get 5% stronger. So that's still like a relatively big jump. Whereas it seems like, uh, especially when sets aren't taken to failure, folks seem to get maybe like three-ish percent weaker on average set to set. And so, you know, if, if someone can knock out, say, three sets of eight, uh, and you want to eventually progress them towards being able to do three sets of 10 uh, and maybe three sets of 12 before you bump them up to the 45-pound dumbbells, what you could do and what I tend to do is get to the point that they can do three sets of eight. And then before we try to jump to sets of 10, we go to four sets of eight because they'll be able to complete the fourth set of eight before they'll be able to complete the third set of 10. Um, so it's not so much about increasing volume per se it's more about folks who like quantitative goals in terms of like here's the weight i'm working with and i want a set in rep goal to work towards and then just what's reasonable so what i tend to do is like three sets of eight four sets of eight five sets of eight then jump to sets of 10 three sets of 10 four sets of 10 five sets of 10 then jump to sets of 12 three sets of 12 four sets of 12 five sets of 12 and then increase load uh, and generally, again, for exercises where you're dealing with large relative load increases. So, you know, if someone has to jump from like 30 to 35 pound dumbbells for a particular exercise. Um, so, th and again, that's not so much about trying to increase volume to maximize hypertrophy. It's more just about giving people reasonable quantitative goals to shoot for to keep them excited and engaged and allowing them to make like quantitative progress that keeps them invested. Um, so yeah, th those are some reasons why I might would argue in favor of set increases across like somewhat shorter timescales. But I think that, I think that in general, um, like, so I, I, if you think about training conceptually and you assume that like for an individual, there is a given level of volume that is the best for them. Like, we don't know what that is. That's a needle in the haystack that you're looking for. But, like, theoretically, there's probably going to be some level of volume that, that's ideal for that individual. And then, my opinion, this could be right, this could be wrong, this is how I feel, is that there's kind of a plateau where along that plateau, you're basically doing more work but not getting much extra in return. So I don't think that you hit a pinnacle on kind of the volume hypertrophy relationship and then immediately start dropping off. So, you know, let's say that for a given lift, uh, like four sets per exercise is ideal for you. I don't think five sets is going to be worse than four. I think it's going to be pretty similar and maybe up to like eight sets will get you similar growth and then it's going to start dropping off from there. Um, so I think that like you you can wind up in a situation where you're doing more and more work and not really getting much extra in return for it. Um, and one thing I'll note is that like 
that's not just my feeling. Like I think the the general volume dose response research kind of supports that where really, really low volumes tend to not cause much hypertrophy. And then in in studies that have like three levels of volume, generally like moderate and high have relatively sim- similar results uh, as far as hypertrophy goes. So I, I think that like <laughs> past a certain point, you're just kind of progressing through that dead zone where you're doing more work and not really getting much extra in return for it. Um, and then like, you know, there's, there's also the question of, uh, of risk and, um, just like risk and ROI. Like if you can, if you can theoretically do like a third less volume than you're currently doing and still get the same basic results, like one, it's just inefficient to do more. And then two, like injuries inevitably happen like that's just something that occurs with training um and if you so we don't know like 100% all of the risk factors for injuries and resistance training but just like exposure seems to be a big one (laughs) that like people who do more total training whether that's putting in more hours per week uh, putting in more sets per workout, like however you want to quantify it. People who have a greater number of exposures uh, seem to get injured more often kind of per unit of calendar time. So like if it's basically like, what's my risk of getting injured in the next year? The more you train, the greater your risk is, um, kind of all else being equal. Um, and so, I mean, like, I, I think to some degree you're just increasing your, your exposure and risk. And like I said previously, probably not getting too much in return for it. So I think that your, your better bet is just to try to find a level of volume that, that works, that allows you to accomplish what you want to accomplish. It is helping you get stronger. It is help. It is helping you get bigger. Um, and just stick with that until it isn't working anymore. And then, you know, and then you may need to increase volume from there, or you may need to decrease volume from there. Um, one of the things I've noticed talking to like really, really strong lifters, and this is true for myself as well, like the level of training volume that works best for me now currently is quite a bit lower than it was when I was quite a bit weaker. Um, and I think that's just because like the amount of of stimulus I'm capable of exposing myself to and the amount of stress I'm capable of putting on my body on a per set basis is just a lot higher than it used to be when I wasn't as strong as I am now. Um, and that's not the case for every really strong person I know, but it seems to be the case for like a non-negligible number of them. Uh, and so I, I one would push back against just (laughs) the progression of volume over time for everyone in all situations, period. Uh, and two, like, those those general changes in optimal volume levels, in my experience, seem to take place on the time scale of years or maybe months, certainly not weeks. Yeah, I, I think another thing from a, a practical perspective is I know that a lot of my clients are they're very busy and they they like training, so they don't like short workouts, but they also, like I said, they're busy, so they don't like workouts that drag on and on and on. And so as set number, if there's really large fluctuations in set number from week to week across the course of a mesocycle, I think I know that many of my clients would frankly be annoyed 
by the variation in the duration of workouts as you kind of climbed up from very few sets to a large number of sets per workout. So like just having the the duration of the workout be a little bit more fixed and a little bit more reliable and uh, predictable from, from workout to workout and week to week. I think a lot of people practically enjoy that as a feature of a program. And, you know, when you mentioned uh, there's a lot of exercises, you know, when you get into accessory work where each incremental jump is big, you know, and and so you're like, well, we can't just add another increment in weight because we're not ready for that yet. Uh, and man, that was never more true than, uh, when every gym in the world shut down, <laughs> uh, and, uh, all of a sudden, a lot of my clients said like, all right, Eric, you know, good news. I have a home gym, bad news. I've got three dumbbells. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so like, it was like, okay, I, I've well, got two sets. I've got some thirties and some seventies. Exactly. Yeah. So it's like, okay, are we ready to jump from 30 to 70? Probably not yet. And so it, it kind of made me get creative with, you know, how are we going to continue bumping this along without making a jump in the weight we're using? And in the response paper, uh, Brian Miner and colleagues kind of laid out a, a double progression method where it's like, okay, well, let's use that fixed load. Let's keep bumping reps up with a particular reps and reserve target. And once we're hitting a, a large number of reps, with that given proximity to failure, now we know, okay, let's bump up the load and drop down to the lower end of our acceptable repetition range. So, so using things like that has been really helpful or rather than just saying, well, let's add another set on, I would say, well, let's, let's get some more reps this week, but maintain our proximity to failure and adjust things that way. And eventually we can kind of bump things up uh, you know, even though we have a limited number of options in terms of loading. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, of course, anyone that puts together a program at some point is going to fluctuate the number of sets that exists in the program, but I'm definitely more inclined to do that block to block or mesocycle to mesocycle rather than within mesocycle. You know, if we're getting to the point where I'm like, okay, we need to make a relatively large incremental jump up in our volume. I'll probably add that at the beginning of the next mesocycle and kind of ease into that higher volume as we go. Mm-hmm. Um, cool. I, I think people will be satisfied with that response, Greg. Uh, I think you uh, made your thoughts known. That's useful. Practical stuff. Cool. Um, okay. um, can we do one Q&A? I really want to do the Wilk score one. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, let's see here. Uh, is this the... Yeah. It's Kinney. Yeah, Kenny asked this. I re- so the other day I was looking at the outline and I the only thing I saw <laughs> <laughs> the only thing I saw was a specific line that said, "Let's assume Paul Rudd is an average powerlifter." And I was like, "What are you responding to?" So Kenny asks, uh, "Can you calculate or estimate based on evidence in the documentary film Ant-Man what Ant-Man's Wilk score would be?" And is Ant-Man's Wilk score achievable as a natural lifter? Yeah, so that is a great question, which is why... Everybody's been thinking it, so yeah, somebody yeah. had to ask No, it. for sure. I, and, and I appreciate uh, Kenny's intellectual curiosity and, and bravery for being willing to ask this question. <laughs> so yeah, I love this question, which is why I wanted to shoehorn it into this episode. Um, and there's, there's levels to this. So the, so the first thing to keep in mind 
is that uh, Ant-Man, I think canonically, like how his power is supposed to work, is that he's able to shrink or grow, but like basically his strength doesn't change as he shrinks or grows. So like he can be the size of an ant and still be as strong as a normal sized man. Conversely, when he grows really, really big, he's like, he seems weak and moves very sluggishly because, you know, he now has way more mass because he's much larger, but he's not any stronger than he was when he was normal size. Like, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's how Ant-Man's power set works. Um, and so the, the room temperature IQ way of approaching this question is being like, okay, well, Wilkes is essentially uh, like a very, very complex, like fifth order polynomial strength to body weight ratio. Uh, lighter people have higher Wilkes scores if their total is the same. Therefore, uh, Ant-Man could shrink and shrink and shrink. His mass would get smaller and smaller, tending towards zero. And therefore, uh, his Wilkes score could be infinite if he was still capable of like lifting a bar any distance whatsoever. Um, like I said, that is the room temperature IQ way of approaching this question because uh, it completely misunderstands how the Wilkes score works. So, uh, Wilkes score is kind of like a fancy strength to body weight ratio, but the difference between Wilkes score and strength to body weight ratios is that the uh, the y-intercept of the Wilkes formula is not at zero. So, uh, at zero body weight, uh, or like as you approach zero body mass, it doesn't actually like keep getting lower and lower and lower. So the normal IQ way of approaching this would be to say like, okay, well, let's get the fifth order polynomial that defines a Wilkes score. Let's plot it. And then let's see if there are any vertical asymptotes, which there are. There are two vertical asymptotes at kind of not completely ridiculous body weights, I guess. Uh, so one is a vertical asymptote at a body weight slightly below 13 and a half kilos. And the other is a vertical asymptote slightly above 283 kilos. And so you could look at that and say like, hey, there is a perfect body mass that he could shrink himself down to. And then no matter what he lifted at that body mass, his, his Wilkes score would be virtually infinite. Um, so yeah, like that seems like it makes sense. But like I said, that's the normal IQ. Here's the galaxy brain approach, which actually knows how Wilkes functions. So if you go to like, if you, if you just go to the Wikipedia page for Wilkes score, it'll give you the coefficients to plot the fifth order polynomial that like defines the Wilkes coefficients. But that's not actually how Wilkes score is calculated. The actual real legit Wilkes score is literally just a table of coefficients. And that is what Wilkes score is. And so it goes from 40 to 205 kilos for male lifters. And so if you're a male lifter and you're less than 40 kilos, you don't plug it into the, the formula, the fifth order polynomial to get it. You just assume that whoever it is weighs exactly 40 kilos. Anyone under 40 kilos is 40 kilos for all intents and purposes for Wilkes. And anyone above 205 kilos is exactly 205 kilos for the purposes of Wilkes. Uh, so that's how it actually functions. The, the formula doesn't fucking matter. It's literally just the table of coefficients, and that is Wilkes. Um, and so the best that Paul Rudd could actually do, or Ant-Man, uh, 
is he could shrink down such that his body mass is 40 kilos and then just lift what he lifts. Uh, And that is the best his Wilk score could possibly be. And so uh, the line that Eric was referring to in the outline is, let's assume Paul Rudd is a more or less average male powerlifter. And so somewhere around the median performance for male powerlifters is a squat around 200 kilos, bench around 150, deadlift around 250. Uh, So a total of about 600 kilos. If you totaled 600 kilos at a body mass of 40 kilos, uh, your Wilk score would be about 801. Uh, and, And so that's like the original Wilks. I know there was a new Wilks formula that came out this year. No one fucking uses it. Uh, the IPF has moved on. I think like th- the one federation in Australia that Wilkes himself is still associated with uses the new Wilkes formula. Who gives a shit? The Wilkes that everyone knows, and I would say loves, but I think everyone hated it, is like the older <laughs> version of the formula. So that's what we're going with. Uh, so with that version... You hate of- it, but it's familiar. Correct. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so with that version of the formula, his Wilkes would be about 801. The best Wilkes ever by anyone competing raw uh, was Mariana Gasparian. Uh, so her Wilkes was 720. And the best Wilkes score ever in a drug-tested meet was uh, Andre Stanazic at 598. So to answer Kenny's question, what would the Wilkes score be and is it achievable natty? Probably around 801, assuming he's more or less average. And I don't think that that's achievable natty. Uh, The thing is, like, I'm generally pretty optimistic about the progression of the sport of powerlifting. Like, it's the best lifters have gotten a lot better over the last decade. I think that there's still probably room to improve. But for, for, for the best tested Wilkes to go from, like, right at 600 to right at 800, that would entail the assumption that lifters can get about a third better than they currently are. And I, I really just don't see that happening. It may happen. Maybe I'm a pessimist. Uh, I have been on the optimistic side of things as far as the progression of the sport has gone up to this point. I just don't see, I just don't see the top lifters getting a full third better than they currently are. So, uh, no, I do not think uh, Ant-Man's Wilk score would be achievable natty. So now everybody can stop asking. Uh, right. It's, it's every week I'm getting this question. Yeah, stop blowing my inbox up about that. Uh, however, if you want me to stay on as a permanent co-host of this show, you should blow up Eric's inbox asking him to keep me on. If 100 people message him before the next episode comes... I will stay on and be promoted to permanent co-host. We talked about this before we started recording. If a hundred people don't message him, uh, I will be kicked off the podcast permanently um, and do what everyone has been expecting me to do this whole time, which is uh, raise a guerrilla army and lay siege to the Netherlands. So those are your options if you're listening to this. A quick correction: It's not messages before the next episode. It, as long it's the the messages have to get in before October seventh. That's the date. <laughs> so, so b- before this episode comes out. Listen, that's five days. Make it happen. Um, all right. So, to play us out, we are at the end of the episode here. Um, 
it's October. We're recording this on October 2nd. October means Big Ten football is back in about three weeks here. And if, if football is back, it means barbecue is on. So to play us out, we've got some barbecue tips. I'm going to go first because you don't want to miss what I've got to say about this. Um, people ask me for cooking tips all the time. So uh, first of all, I'm just going to make a controversial statement that is actually a fact. Eastern Carolina barbecue sauce is the best version of barbecue sauce. Is that vinegar-based or mustard-based? Heavy vinegar, okay. some black pepper Cause, in there. Because both of those are Eastern North Carolina barbecue sauces. I like the mustard one, too. I, I've been getting a lot of barbecue sauce at the grocery store for my shredded chicken. A big surprise. It's going on shredded chicken, everybody. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the the super vinegar-based with some black pepper is amazing. And then the, the equally vinegar-based with some mustard in it is also a beautiful thing. Um, people argue about other kinds of barbecue styles that are, they're very good, but the Eastern Carolina barbecue, in terms of sauces, you just can't beat it. Now, here's what I've been doing uh, for, for people who are keeping an eye on their macros a little bit. My coleslaw recipe, out of this world. So you go get the actual like vegetable mix for coleslaw, which is just a bunch of chopped up cabbage, a little bit of carrot in there. Um, but it's just like getting a bag of salad greens, you know, at, at the grocery store. So I get the, uh, the vegetables all chopped up, ready to go, uh, put them in a bowl. Here's what you put in. You put in, uh, Greek yogurt, mix that in there. And you put in just a little bit of Dijon mustard and a little bit of Splenda. You got a little bit of tangy, a little bit of sweet. You mix it all up. It's really good coleslaw. And that's all I got. Get some shredded chicken in there, throw some sauce on it. You're good to go. No salt? I No, because I, I I eat it all in a big combination. So I, the um, the barbecue sauce is, is a little bit salty. I gotcha. Yeah. It's good stuff, man. Uh, sure. I mean, I, like, honestly, as far as, like, macro-friendly stuff goes, that sounds fine. Uh, if you ever wanted to thin it out a little bit, like, throwing a splash of, of uh, apple cider vinegar in there would probably be pretty good. Yeah, I might try that. Uh, okay. So, so my barbecue tip is for anyone who wants to make like a pretty adequate rack of ribs indoors. So it's not that hard to smoke ribs as long as you can, uh, like control the temperature of your smoker reasonably well, like uh, decent smoked ribs are, are trivially easy, but I know a lot of people either don't have a smoker or like you live in an apartment. And so like, that's just logistically not feasible and so if you want something that isn't going to replace good smoked ribs but at least comes reasonably close that you can do indoors in your kitchen uh here is a good option so uh first thing i'd strongly strongly recommend uh using a sous vide circulator if you uh, can afford one if you can't, you can do it without it, but sous vide makes it easier and the resulting ribs will be juicier. Um, but I'll, I'll give you tips for whether or not you have the sous vide circulator. So to start with, um, I'm a big, big fan of brining pretty much any meat uh, and ribs are no exception. So I think uh, good ribs start with a good brine if you have the time to do so. So just make a 2% salt solution. Um, brine your ribs overnight in that salt solution 
and put it in a relatively shallow container so that it doesn't need as much brine to cover the ribs. And then here's the important part. So they make, um, they make like cheap smoking contraptions that you can either use like on your countertop or in your oven. Uh, and all of those just seem to me to be like more trouble than they're actually worth. A very simple solution to getting something that tastes smoky that you don't actually have to smoke is just using liquid smoke, which isn't as good as just like regular ass smoke. And I know people throw shade on liquid smoke, but like, honestly, it's fine. Like if you, if you want to get that smoky flavor, and especially if we're talking about ribs, which you're probably going to be applying a dry rub to, and maybe some sauce, um, it's not as noticeable that it's liquid smoke. So, you know, if you just want like smoky bacon and it's the difference between like actually smoking it and the only other flavor going on is just salt, it's going to be fucking obvious that you use liquid smoke. But for ribs, like you can honestly get away with it. So uh, add some liquid smoke to your brine that you're going to be soaking the ribs in and add a little bit more than you think you need. So mix them in, sniff it. When it smells a little smokier than you think it needs to smell, it's probably pretty good. And the reason you want to get it a little too smoky is it's not going to get like super, super deep into the ribs. So anyway, you get your smoky brine, 2% salt solution, soak the ribs overnight. And then uh, the next day, if you're using sous vide, uh, what you would then do is uh, take the ribs out of the brine, pat them dry, apply a dry rub. Uh, I personally prefer to use just plain yellow mustard as a binder. You can use whatever you want. Um, and for your dry rub, I'd either recommend no salt in it since you've already brined the ribs or just very, very light salt because if you are brining your ribs beforehand, they could wind up too salty if you use a salty dry rub. Uh, you go ahead and apply your dry rub, put it in a sous vide bag and sous vide at 165 degrees Fahrenheit for about 10 to 12 hours. That'll get you some, some nice soft ribs that aren't just like completely falling apart. Uh, and then once that's done, you remove from the bag, you apply some sauce or glaze if you so choose, or, you know, you can just leave them with only the dry rub, pop them in a really hot oven so at least 450 degrees Fahrenheit, or if you're going to be watching them pretty close, uh, just you can go ahead and pop them under a broiler. And all that's going to do is like really get everything nice and bubbly. If you apply to sauce or glaze, that's going to help it set. Um, if you do use a broiler, be really, really careful of burning, especially if there was sugar in your dry rub or sauce, because if the sugar burns and like actually turns black it's going to be super bitter and taste like shit um but yeah so that that's if you're sous vide if you don't have a sous vide system that's totally fine um once you've uh like once you've brined the ribs overnight same process pat it dry apply your dry rub and then uh bake at a low temperature almost as if you were smoking so like maybe 250 degrees, uh, and just temp it every so often. So ribs, like you don't want medium ribs. That's going to be a problem. There's going to be a lot of unrendered fat. There's going to be a lot of connective tissue that hasn't broken down yet. So you want to get your ribs up to about 165, 170, give or take. Uh, but yeah, just keep it in a low oven until you reach that internal temperature and then exact same process as before. Uh, crank the temperature up, Apply your sauce and or glaze if that's what you're using. Uh, get everything nice and bubbly and sizzly and uh, 
they'll be pretty decent ribs. Again, not as good as legit smoked ribs, but not a terrible simulacrum to be able to make indoors in a kitchen. All right. And always, when you make those ribs, put a little bit of the old Trexler coleslaw on the side of the plate. It's going to go well perfectly together. Um, Okay. So that does it for our first episode back from summer break. Uh, Before we leave, I want to remind you to join in on the Stronger by Science conversation by going to the Facebook group or the subreddit. Uh, And again, the Facebook group is called the Stronger by Science Community. So along those lines, be sure to be a good member of those communities. Uh, Be kind to each other. Be helpful to each other. Uh, Greg and I are going to have a presence there. The other Stronger by Science coaches are also going to have a presence there. So it's a great place to discuss all things Stronger by Science and really just all things training and nutrition in general. You know, Greg and I get a lot of direct messages with questions about training and nutrition. And of course, we're happy to receive those, happy to answer them. But they're generally really good questions and other people benefit from seeing those interactions and joining in on those conversations themselves. So be sure to check out those online communities and we will see you there. As always, thank you for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast and we will be back with our next episode in two weeks. Thank you for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to sign up for our free newsletter to get concise breakdowns of relevant research as well as 28 free training programs for all skill levels and all schedules. We hate spam just as much as you do, so we'll only email you when we have something really interesting to share with you. You can sign up for the free newsletter at strongerbyscience.com newsletter, or just go to the Stronger by Science homepage and click the free programs button at the top. If you want to join in on the Stronger by Science podcast conversation, be sure to check out our Facebook group and our subreddit. The links for both are provided in the description of today's episode. Finally, please remember that we are not medical doctors or registered dietitians. So before you make any changes to your exercise or nutrition habits, be sure to check with a qualified healthcare professional. Once again, thank you for listening, and we will be back soon with another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast.